the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. A prison sentence doesn't just impact the person incarcerated, it impacts entire families. This week, we talk with a college professor and documentary producer who examines the impact of our justice system. She shares ideas on needed changes to keep prison from becoming a life sentence for entire generations and on how she's enlisting others to make such changes realities. There must be no doubt about whose side we're on. People who commit crimes should be caught, convicted, and punished. You will be put away and put away for good. Three strikes and you are out. In 1993, Washington State was the first state to implement the three strikes policy and make it okay to put people in prison and throw away the key. Young kids were getting involved in horrendous violence. Things were spiraling wildly out of control. The face of the threat became young black and brown men. This is our hill. Don't come here. The police would round them up for whatever reason they could. What you doing here? You don't live around here. Some people didn't commit crimes and were just caught up. All my friends is either in prison forever or dead. You saw a sample of the film that we're going to be exploring, not only the film itself, but also the content that's explored in that film in much greater detail. But we'd like to welcome three very special guests with us today. Uh, Gilda Shepard, PhD, the director, writer, and executive producer of Since I've Been Down, and also a professor at Evergreen State College at the Tacoma campus. Gilda, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Jeff, for having us. Yes. And also to offer some perspective of their involvement, their first impression of this film, and where it's taken them, uh, our Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown of Plymouth Congregational Church. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so delighted to be here with you all. And Rabbi Jay Rosenbaum, Rabbi Emeritus of Herzl near Tamid uh, on Mercer Island, I believe. Yes. And Rabbi, thank you so much for joining us as well. Pleasure to be here. So the first question I would pose to uh, Gilda, and that is, your decision to focus on this issue and then ultimately to produce a film, uh, from what I understand, arose from your teaching experience at Evergreen State College on the Tacoma campus. Can you fill us in a little bit on that? Yes, you know, it, that's exactly where this whole idea of creating this film was really punctuated and actualized. It was at the Evergreen State College in Tacoma because of the location. You know, T Tacoma is uh, located in the Hilltop community where the film's content is. But the Hilltop community has a long history of social forces like redlining and gentrification mm -hmm. and disinvestment and employment and, and, and even in schools, right? And so if you give a zip code around Hilltop, you can even approximate some of that public health issues that were going on. It's hmm. also, so it's the location, but also Evergreen State College has a certain kind of pedagogy that's community-based. 
And it is an adult education, liberal arts, interdisciplinary school, which means that if you're teaching math, you can also teach it with sociology. So you can see how those two things kind of dance together and mm -hmm. inform one another. Community base is that we, we give these new theories and uh, ways of looking at things and analysis to our students and they find it in their neighborhoods. So they be began to critically think about why this zip code, you know, had these disparities, why mm -hmm. there was redlining, why there was gentrification, not only that, but how it led to an other pathways to kids joining gangs as early as 11 with disinvestment in communities. And I dare say that um, Pierce County is close to having the majority of uh, incarcerated people. And if you look at that, the disparities are black and brown. But see, but it really came from my concern and love for children. That's the main example being at mm -hmm. Evergreen. And I started noticing that uh, some of my students had ankle bracelets, right? And, and uh, we'll talk about in the, the analysis of what was going on in the neighborhoods, talk about it locally, spread it nationally, and look at policies, even from history, mm -hmm. from Jim Crow and those kinds of things, and how that ushered in this culture of punishment you know so um and so it began there and because sometimes you know art helps you to see what you sometimes don't see and that's what James Baldwin said and so as a sociologist and a filmmaker who, who prides herself at being a storyteller I was able to embrace these stories and uh, give it a kind of visual metaphor, as well as unravel statistics to show that it how it affects children mm -hmm. and the legacy of this, but also the triumph of the human spirit. No slow fade in the gore for this film. <laughs> the young people that you encountered in your classroom that you said had ankle bracelets on, uh, did their participation in the class, did the depth of their knowledge or wisdom uh, surprise you or not surprise you once you notice that they were wearing ankle bracelets and what uh, that suggested? Yeah, well, you know, Jeff, I must admit, you know, I came in and like, ah, shocked, right? And at their brilliance, even, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes we are teachers at, as Atlas, we carry the world on our shoulders and we're supposed to impart it to everybody. Not realize, as Bell Hook says, that oftentimes the marginalized people, people who live on the margin, have a better, or mm, I don't want to say better, but have a possibility because of the data in their life of understanding structural problems. Mm -hmm. And so I learned from them, you know, um, uh, I think someone's, uh, Maxine Green says, um, uh, education helps you to create who you are. And mm -hmm. so sometimes I become the student, but yes, I had to go through this positionality where I said, oh, let me impart. And then I saw the ankle bracelet and I saw the possibility of people's analysis and in, in critical thinking. And then from what I recall, uh, you took that a step further from not only teaching in what would traditionally be the classroom, but you took your classroom into the prisons. Uh, tell us about that and what your initial impressions were and then how those impressions expanded, uh, yeah. perhaps, as you spent more and more time there. 
Yeah, let me tell you a little backdrop. I, I had finished an, a, a, a documentary in Ghana, West Africa in a refugee camp. And at the end of that, this one woman who was the head of the camp had been a refugee for decades, mm -hmm. told me, she said, you know, Sis Gilda, the same AK-47s that you see in the Civil War in Liberia are in your kids' hands, just like child soldiers, and you need to do something about that. Huh. So I, when I returned, I started volunteer teaching sociology classes at the prison and the same rude awakening Jeff happened. I talk about this one concept in sociology called sociological imagination, where a person looks at their biography and how they have responsibility for shaping their biography, but there are other social forces, history and those kinds of things. You know, Tacoma, Washington state was the first state to do three strikes out. Okay, mm -hmm. Washington State has no parole, right? Washington, and so there's, and Washington State incarcerates more Black people than the national average. Really? Right? And so that's, uh, a lot of people don't even know we don't have parole. And so, you know, I was thinking about that through a problematic lens. But what I, when I gave students the assignment of looking at their biography and how it is informed, not determined, but informed by legislation, history, all kinds of things, environmental science, environmental, you know, problems and those kinds of things. Um, I got an analysis that blew my mind. I thought, where did this come from? Okay, that's okay, Gilda. You're once again, teacher as Atlas. But then I realized there was a group called the Black Prisoners Caucus, Jeff. Mm -hmm. And it was an, uh, um, a, a group that's over 50 years old, and it prides itself on education, transformative justice, because they look at policies, too, mm -hmm. and have these summits and spread this kind of public education across race lines. It starts with the Black Prisoners Caucus, but that but their tendency is to, to teach across significant differences. So they would have these summits, they would study together, they were like the organic intellectual for sure. And I was like, oh my God. You know, so we look at statistics, mm -hmm. but there are stories too within those statistics. So this whole kind of community-based pedagogy that I got from Evergreen, I was able to see it already actualized at some of the prisons through this 50 year, over 50 year organization called the Black Prisoners Caucus. When you speak about stories and the lived experiences of some of these people, it uh, reminds me and it strikes me about one of the people featured in your film, and I believe his name is Kamanti Carter. We're yeah. going to briefly pause and offer a brief clip of a statement that uh, Kamanti made as part of your film. My name's Kamani Carter, and I'm currently serving a life sentence for a gang-related drive-by that happened nine years ago. My victim was innocent. He was also a student who was attending college. His name was Corey Pittman. At this time, I would like to apologize to the Pittman family, because only now have I begun to understand that the enjoyment of life once taken away can never be replaced. And I'm sorry. My history is the life of a lot of kids out there in our community. And my reality as a young man doing life in prison will be their future if we don't start creating better ways of dealing with our children.
it's stories such as Camantes, I think, that I know personally watching your film made a very strong impression on me. And so I might ask both uh, Reverend Brown and Rabbi uh, Rosenbaum, when you first saw this, what impression it made on you? Gilda, perhaps since you first encountered him, start out and then uh, we might uh, proceed to Reverend uh, Brown and then also Rabbi Rosenbaum. What I saw was both restorative justice, him talking about remorse and at the same time, compassion. Mm -hmm. He says, and if, we if we're not careful, first he starts off with an apology, compassion you know, restorative justice. He starts there. And an admittance of guilt, mm -hmm. right? He says what he did, right? But then he goes to how, if we're not careful, this pipeline from school to prison, from youth to prison, from neighborhood to prison, particularly if you're poor, black, and brown, but also poor, we can see the legacy of these disparities. So, um, I saw a mixture of restorative and transformative justice in what Kamanti said. And that was the first time that he had spoken. He was always very quiet, I understand. Mm -hmm. I wasn't there then when, uh, when uh, uh, before the speech, and that was his first speech. But this is after he was fired in the kiln of the Black Prisoners Caucus, mm -hmm. this wonderful group that is now, and I think, uh, 10 prisons, including the women's prison. And... Um, one of one of the meetings we've we've had uh, was at my church, Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown's church, and that's how I met Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown because um, there was something going on at the prisons, particularly regarding the Black Prisoners Caucus. And this is what community did, and this is um, the church as an activist, a place of possibilities. And so, mm -hmm. um, that's my opening to my Thank dear you. Reverend Dr. <laughs> Kelly Brown. <laughs> Thank you. I'm happy to um, pick up here. My first impressions is I was grateful for the brilliance of a Dr. Gilda Shepherd meeting my journey and bringing um, to the community at Plymouth Church, United Church of Christ, which is now going on 153 years old. Uh, we were a founding uh, congregation for the city of Seattle. And really um, what's in the DNA of our church is uh, justice work. And so it seemed to fit so closely with our relationship with Village of Hope and by way of Village of Hope, the Black, Cauc uh, Black Prisoners Caucus, it gave us an ability to see uh, another um, calling, if you will, <laughs> that the church uh, needed to be a part of. So for that, I'm grateful. But in terms of um, uh, Kelly Brown, the individual watching the movie, I was transformed completely mm -hmm. because I had um, been going to Monroe myself to visit um, prisoners who were in the special offenders unit who had not been visited for some time. And my work with the Reverend Dale Sewell, who was the former pastor of Mercer Island Presbyterian Church, um, we started a program meeting these folks in the SOU as well as beginning to meet folks who were in the um, um, isolation. Mm -hmm. And so who most certainly had not uh, been visited for some time. And so the movie spurred um, so much imagination and collided with the work that I was doing mm -hmm. and reminded me that probably the cure to cancer is in our prisons. 
and and more than likely the cure to all that ails us is probably locked away and what are we doing people of faith like the um phenomenal Rabbi J. Rosenbaum, whom you hear from, and all, all of the folks who are so called to um, lead um, congregations and people of faith, what is um, encouraging us to do this work to restore humanity? Mm-hmm. And how many of us are, in fact, um, we probably should be incarcerated, but aren't? Mm. And how dare we be judgmental? And how can we really walk alongside those who are... Uh, uh, newly freed, such as Kamanti Carter, uh, so that there may be a, um, an awareness of the moral injury and the trauma and all of that, but mm-hmm. also an invitation to freedom, liberation um, in a real sense. Rabbi, I might ask you then, uh, what led you to see this film for the first time? And then what were your impressions after you saw it? And what surprises I might ask also? Mm-hmm. If you don't mind, I, I'd like to give my first impressions, and that will lead into what led me to see it the first time. Uh, I'd say f- there were two things. First of all, I was struck by what I would not have seen if I had met Kamati Carter at the age of 18. Uh-huh. I was really, uh, really blown away by that. I saw, I saw an educated, uh, urbane, articulate, um, you know, highly intelligent, soft-spoken mm-hmm. uh, young man uh, who had, at this stage in his life, become an inspirational educational leader and, an, and a racial harmonizer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I just think, think back, like, what would have happened if I had met Kamati mm-hmm. Carter at the age of 18 or the age of mm-hmm. 16 mm-hmm. or the age of 12 when he first joined a gang? He joined mm-hmm. a gang at 11. I would not have seen any of that. Um, I mean, I have to admit, I, w- I, w- I would have seen trouble. I would have seen a fraction of the person that he uh, could become and did become. Mm-hmm. I would not have seen his whole story. I would have seen a very, very tiny portion of his story. And it struck me that so often in life, that's what we see uh, when we meet people. We see a, a very thin slice of their story and we miss a lot. And in Kamaki's case, we would have missed the most important stuff. And I, I could not help but wonder how many Kamaki Carters are walking around in our midst right now. Mm-hmm. And we're not we're not seeing the people that they become because we're just seeing something very superficial. Um, and that's to me was what made the film particularly powerful, mm-hmm. showing the humanity of this extraordinary individual, which most people missed for most of his life. It's ironic that it had to be in prison that his true potential as a human being would come out. The reason I came to see the film film in the first place is that my friend and colleague, Dr. Mark Jones, and I um, started a project called Building Black and Jewish Beloved Community. Uh, And we were, our our initial uh, emphasis was on revitalizing the Black-Jewish relationship in in our region. And from the beginning, and we were inspired by Dr. King's vision of beloved community. And mm-hmm. Dr. King, uh, what was extraordinary about him was that, yes, it's true. Of course, his, his first responsibility was to his own community. But he was a person who was a, not just a, a hero to the Black people. He was an American hero. 
he was he was his goal was to transform the American community to make America a better place. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was in his own way as concerned about the souls of, of you know, white people in the South as he was about, you know, uh, redeeming his own people from oppression. Um, and when I looked at Kamandi Carter, I said, well, here's a guy who's building beloved community inside prison walls. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a, he's doing more for a beloved community than we are outside the prison. Outside the prison, America is polarized. Americans, you know, from different uh, races and ethnic groups and political parties are are shunning each other, demonizing each other. And here inside the prison walls, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a man who's bringing together uh, blacks and Latinos and even white supremacists. That that was like unbelievable. White supremacists joined his group. You know, <laughs> crazy stuff. We could we could learn a lot from him. Absolutely. I wish Kamati was here because I'd like to ask him what his impression was the first time a white supremacist walked into his group. But uh, <laughs> uh, both of you offered some wonderful perspectives, and I know you've been following those initial impressions, and we're going to talk about that further. But I think it might be a good time to widen our view a little bit. And Gilda, I know that the uh, book from uh, Michelle Alexander, uh, The New Jim Crow, has been very influential in your thinking and in how you approach this. And I know that uh, Michelle Alexander essentially returned the favor by saying how impressed she was with your film. Uh, Both the book and the film make it very clear that the system of incarceration and the degree of incarceration is unique in this country uh, compared to other uh, what we consider developed countries. And in fact, I think there's been the phrase that we seem to have addiction, an addiction for throwing human lives away. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about, maybe give us a quick overview of Michelle's book and how it influenced you and your approach to this film? Well, I met Michelle Alexander when she came to speak at um, Washington State Reformatory, where the black my the first prison that I started teaching at. 12 years ago, and she met Kamanti Carter and the Black um, Prisoners Caucus. What Michelle Alexander really punctuated of her many arguments and theses and data that she collected, great researcher, was how the systems of racism from even the 1800s till today are still going on. It's not like History repeats itself. It's like mm-hmm. people repeat history. That you know that um, that the rise of mass incarceration may seem like a recent phenomenon. However, right after um, the alleged emancipation of, uh, of of enslaved Africans, you know, that there was a lot of particular mass incarceration of black people, right? That is repeated not only today, we see the disparities in an amount of people who are in prison per population in the in uh, uh, the United States of America, in the world, mm-hmm. you know, that but what she also says is that once people get out of prison, there's this almost invisible cage of felony. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get a job. It's you, you, you owe money because it's legal financial obligations with high percentages, you know, and if you don't, you know, there's, there's a criminalization of poverty. So they're all, 
there's all of these other hard to get um a place to live, hard to get a job, all of those things. So what she what she helped me to do was look at things systemically. Mm-hmm. You know, incarceration should be a last resort, not a first response. And we've turned it into a first response. And it's an ex- you know, it's it, the path of least resistance is to get rid of people that are that are problematic for you in any way. Uh, instead of dealing with the underlying problems in society that are generating these these problems in the first place. Uh, incarceration is is a failure. You have to have some of it. But if you have tons of it, it means there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. And we're not looking at those things. And justice is supposed to be relational. It's supposed to be brothers and sisters, and I say um, in solidarity with those who are trans and non-binary siblings, we are related to one another. There's no way we can get around it. And what we've done in the systemic ways that we have done incarceration and and criminalization, which is also related to the ways that we have sustained racism and xenophobia and classism and sexism and misogyny and all of the other isms and oppression that Mm -hmm. we carry. If we don't um, do away with this sort of individualism that we think is about pulling up bootstraps when we know people don't have boots and some of us don't even have feet. When we think about the ways that um, we we think we're individuals and it's only hurting me and it's not hurting someone else. None of it is true. And we are suffering as a society because we won't acknowledge and admit that we are connected. And so the more that we criminalize others, the more that we continue this process. And also let me say, we cannot, I cannot stress enough that we need to follow the money because in this country being um, resourced is more important than anything. Mm -hmm. And so we have to also talk about the fact that there are a lot of people with private prisons and other ways that are making a whole lot of money and are relying on the continuation of imprisonment so that their money continues to come. Mm-hmm. But if we're able to get to down to the basics of what I believe God has um, brought before us and to remember that we are community, uh, we, we can't sustain a system like this and, and believe that we are related to one another. It is so obvious we have so much more to talk about, and we are going to. It was very clear when we started talking in preparation for this program that uh, one episode would not do it. And uh, I'm uh, very gratified that all of you have agreed to spend more time with us. And I hope that all of you out there would join us again next week as we continue this conversation of Challenge 2.0.